Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode contains distressing themes and is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. On this episode of They Walk Among America, nestled between the deep blue Atlantic Ocean and the tranquil Isle of Wight Bay lies Ocean City, Maryland. It's a lively resort town that bustles with activity, particularly over Memorial Day weekend. Crowds of eager partygoers from across the nation flock to this coastal haven, drawn by the lure of white sand beaches and the nightlife. Martha Crutchley and Joshua Ford were among the swarm of revelers who descended upon Ocean City over Memorial Day weekend, 2002. While there, the couple struck up a friendship with another vacationing couple after they agreed to cover their bus fare. Little did they know, however, that this simple act of kindness would lead them directly into a nightmare. Hello, listeners. I'm your host, Nina Instead, and welcome to Episode 69 of They Walk Among America, a joint production between the Law & Crime Podcast Network and They Walk Among Us, the award-winning true crime podcast. Joshua Ford was born on September 8, 1969, to parents Al and Doris Ford in South Boston, Massachusetts. The Ford family later moved to Cedar Rapids, Iowa, where Joshua graduated from Cedar Rapids Kennedy High School in 1989. He went on to attend the University of Iowa, but before graduating, he dropped out and enlisted in the Army. Joshua's dedication and hard work paid off. He rapidly rose through the ranks to become a sergeant. Outside of his military duties, Joshua had a keen passion for karate, which he enjoyed teaching in his free time. He was a kind and compassionate man and had dedicated some of his free time to serving as a youth counselor at the Turner Memorial AME Church in Washington, D.C. Joshua's brother, Mark, recalled, He loved working with kids. He was one of the nicest guys, very happy-go-lucky. He liked to have a good time. 
His time as a youth counselor served him well when, at 24 years old, he became father to a little boy he named Zachary. In 2000, Joshua met Martha Crutchley, also known as Jeannie, a woman 19 years his senior, while at a Christmas party in Boston. The duo hit it off immediately. In 2001, Joshua packed up his life in Boston and moved out to Fairfax, Virginia to be with Martha. The couple settled down in a nice home in the neighborhood of Green Acres. Martha worked as an insurance underwriting supervisor, while Joshua found a job working at an investment firm. It was a pleasant Friday, May 24, 2002. Martha and Joshua were excited as they packed their car for a much-anticipated Memorial Day weekend getaway. Leaving behind the humdrum of their everyday life in Virginia, they set off toward Ocean City, Maryland, where they had booked a condo at the Atlantis Condo Complex. The high-rise was located just a stone's throw away from the pristine beach, offering an idyllic location for the couple to soak up the sun. The itinerary for the weekend included shopping sprees, strolls on the beach, romantic dinners, and even a few wild nights on the town. However, when May 28th rolled around, and Martha was expected back for an important business meeting in Fairfax, she didn't show up. Her colleagues became worried when they couldn't reach her by phone. They knew that Martha and Joshua should have returned home by now, so they reported her missing. They knew the couple had been at Ocean City for a vacation and told this to Fairfax City Police. After receiving the report, police in Fairfax contacted police in Ocean City and gave them details of the strange disappearance. A search operation was immediately launched to find the couple, and the Atlantis condo complex became the primary focus of their investigation. Detectives arrived at the complex and knocked on the front door, only to receive no response. They obtained a key from management and entered the unit. Inside, there was no sign of Martha or Joshua. All that remained were their personal belongings, including credit cards, clothing, and toiletries. There was no sign of a struggle or any kind of break-in. It appeared as though the couple had just stepped out somewhere, fully intending to return. Outside in the parking lot, detectives noticed Martha's car, only adding to the mystery of their disappearance. Without the car, detectives figured they couldn't have gotten too far. Detectives issued a news release asking for the public's help in finding Martha and Joshua, and they spoke with the couple's family and friends to establish the last time anyone heard from them. According to Joshua's brother, Mark, the last time they heard from them was on May 25th when Joshua called him up. He appeared to be in good spirits as he spoke about the 40-point comeback playoff win by the Boston Celtics. Close to midnight on May 31st, 2002, the stillness of the night in Ocean City was pierced by the shrill sound of an alarm emanating from the Hooters restaurant on 122nd Street. Despite the restaurant being closed for the night, the blaring alarm alerted the Ocean City Police Department, who quickly rushed to the scene. Upon arrival, they discovered a man and woman loading Hooters merchandise into their Jeep Cherokee. As officers approached, the man shouted, we can put the stuff back. We stole it. We stole it. We can put it back. 
Swiftly realizing they had just intercepted a robbery, the officers handcuffed the duo, who were identified as Benjamin and Erica Sifrit, a married couple from Altoona, Pennsylvania. The officers proceeded to frisk the couple and found that Benjamin was carrying a 9mm handgun and a knife. They also found a fully loaded 357 Magnum revolver tucked into Erica's jeans, as well as a knife that was stained with blood. While Officer Jason Hart placed the weapons to the side, Erica became hysterical. She screamed that she couldn't live without her husband, and that if the officers hadn't found her gun, she would have shot herself. Just go ahead and shoot me, she screamed. While Benjamin and Erica Sifrit were separated, other officers arrived on the scene to search their vehicle. Along with the stolen Hooters merchandise, which amounted to over $5,000, they discovered a 45 caliber gun, ski masks, flex cuffs, and tape. The items found gave credence to the assumption that the couple had nefarious intentions, intentions that possibly escalated beyond robbery. As they continued their search, Erica mentioned that she struggled with anxiety and asked whether she could have her Xanax and Paxil from her brown leather pouch in her purse in the front of the Jeep. Sergeant Bean responded that he would search for it. He came across it on the front passenger floor, but inside the brown leather pouch, he only found one type of medication. He continued in his search for the other and opened up a pouch in the back of the purse. To his surprise, he didn't find any more medication, but instead found four spent 357 Magnum shell casings and one live round. After carefully removing these items, he next searched a gray change purse that was also inside Erica's purse. Inside, he came across two identification cards for Martha Crutchley and Joshua Ford, the couple from Fairfax who had just been reported missing, along with a ring. Benjamin Sifrit was born in Cyprus, Texas, where he enlisted in the U.S. Navy in 1996. He graduated from Basic Underwater Demolition School in August 1997 and then attended several more schools to train as a combat medic. In October 1998, he was assigned to SEAL Team 2 in Little Creek, Virginia. Here, he continued to hone his skills and eventually trained at the prestigious Fleet Medical Service School at Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. It was here that he achieved a top rank of hospital corpsman, second-class petty officer, a testament to his hard work and dedication. As for Erica, she was said to be a woman of great intelligence. She graduated cum laude with a bachelor's degree in history in 2000 from Mary Washington College, located in Fredericksburg, Virginia. Here, she excelled in sports and played on the basketball team, finishing fifth in the nation among Division III schools in three-point field goal percentage. The couple met in 1998 at just 20 years old. Erica was with some girlfriends in Virginia Beach at the time, and three weeks later, she and Benjamin eloped to Las Vegas and were married. Shortly after their marriage, they settled down in the quiet town of Altoona, Pennsylvania where they opened up a scrapbook photo business called Memory Lane. With a brand new business and a Jeep Cherokee paid for by Erica's parents, life appeared to be good, but trouble was brewing just around the corner 
In October 2000, Benjamin Sifrit was serving as a hospital corpsman second class assigned to the Field Medical Service School at Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. One day, he left an assignment and sped off in a car, refusing to stop at the main gate when directed to and cursing at a superior. He was driving 50 miles an hour in a 15-mile-an-hour zone. He commented to his Navy commander, All I want is out, and all I want to do is kill people. He was convicted at a special court-martial of two charges of going AWOL, three charges of insubordination, one charge of drunken or reckless driving, and one charge of wearing unauthorized SEAL insignia. He received a bad conduct discharge along with three months of confinement, forfeiture of $600 in pay per month for the three months, and a reduction in rank. Benjamin's actions were mystifying to those who knew him, and his defense counsel, Captain E.F. Crail, said to the judge, This is a sailor who was showing good qualities and got his SEAL qualification and everything. Apparently, something happened in his last command where he lost that designation. He seems to have completely lost motivation for the Navy. Benjamin appealed the conviction, and on May 14, 2002, a rejection of his appeal was issued. The Navy issued a notice that his discharge was final. While Benjamin Sifrit was working his way through his legal woes, Erica picked up an unusual obsession, Hooters merchandise. She became a serious collector, but at the same time, she was becoming heavily reliant on anti-anxiety medication. In addition to Hooters merchandise, Benjamin and Erica began keeping snakes, including pythons, which they named Bonnie and Clyde, and a cobra they called Hitler. At home, they read Mein Kampf, and Benjamin showed his approval of Adolf Hitler by having a swastika tattooed on his chest. In the months leading up to the weekend away in Ocean City, Benjamin and Erica embarked on a brazen crime spree. They had committed a series of burglaries, breaking in a staggering sum of more than $50,000 worth of beauty supplies and dietary supplements. However, their attention was primarily focused on one particular type of loot, Hooters merchandise. Merchandise from Hooters was highly sought after by avid collectors, and each store printed their own unique items. Prior to Benjamin and Erica Sifrit's arrival at Ocean City, they made a pit stop at a Hooters restaurant just off the interstate in Fredericksburg. Here, Erica struck up a conversation with the waitress. She said that she was an MWC graduate and had once worked at Hooters. After she left the restaurant, the staff noticed that around 20 t-shirts were missing from a display case. They ran out into the parking lot and saw Erica climb into a Jeep Grand Cherokee that was being driven by Benjamin. They sped off heading east, but not before staff wrote down the license plate number and alerted authorities. Detectives in Fredericksburg found that the Jeep was licensed to Erica, and they posted a lookout for the Jeep. Benjamin and Erica Sifrit continued traveling onward to Ocean City, where they soon set their sights on another Hooters restaurant. After Benjamin and Erica were searched along with their Jeep, Detectives were suspicious that they were somehow connected to Martha and Joshua's disappearance. As they were arrested on burglary charges, detectives ordered an immediate search of the condominium where they were staying. Much like Martha and Joshua, 
Benjamin and Erica had rented a condominium in Ocean City for the Memorial Day weekend. They were staying in the penthouse room of the Rainbow Condominiums, just a stone's throw from the beach, and a short walk from where Martha and Joshua were staying. Upon entering the condominium, detectives were immediately struck by the strange scene that greeted them. On a glass table, they found photographs and two spent bullets. The pictures were of Benjamin, Erica, Martha, and Joshua. Alongside the pictures was a white powdery substance and a rolled-up bill, which tested positive for Xanax. Concerned that they had stumbled across a crime scene, the detectives urgently called for forensic and ballistic experts. They recovered the two bullets from the glass table, and further examination revealed that they had been fired from the 357 Magnum found in Erica's jeans outside Hooters. Disturbingly, one of the bullets was coated in Benjamin's blood and tissue. As forensic experts combed the condominium, they discovered even more chilling evidence. On another table, they came across a key for another condominium at Atlantis. It was for the condominium that Martha and Joshua had been staying in. In the bedroom, they came across bloodstains on top of the counter, the underside of the counter, and in several locations on the floor. There was more blood discovered in the bathroom, on the floor under the vanity, on the backside of the bottom drawer of the vanity, under the mirror, under the baseboard, under the hot tub faucet, and on the hot tub step. The blood was all collected to be analyzed, but in the bathroom, forensic experts noticed something else. There was a hole in the back wall that had been freshly painted over. Numerous cleaning supplies were also on the floor next to the bathroom door. As detectives were preparing to interview Benjamin and Erica, the results of the blood testing came back and revealed that the blood all belonged to either Martha or Joshua. The scene inside the penthouse condominium was disturbing. Investigators strongly believed that Martha and Joshua were no longer alive, and that Benjamin and Erica had something to do with it. The couple were separated at police headquarters, and detectives spoke to them individually. At first, Erica maintained her innocence and denied any involvement in Martha and Joshua's disappearance. However, the detectives then used a ruse telling her that Benjamin had already confessed to everything. Erica then agreed to talk, and she said that for some time, Benjamin had been speaking about wanting to kill somebody. She also explained that he wanted to shoot a black person. She commented, He's like, you've got to kill where there's no motive. According to Erica, she was terrified of her husband. Yes, seal friends, I definitely would not want him to know that I was here talking to you. And if I go up and testify, and for some reason you guys don't get him locked up, my family will end up like Joshua and Jeannie. Dead. Erica told the detectives that on the night of May 25th, she and her husband met Martha and Joshua while on their way to Secrets, a popular nightclub in Ocean City. Benjamin and Erica didn't have exact change for the bus fare, so Martha and Joshua stepped forward and offered to pay for them on the condition they buy them a drink at the nightclub. Benjamin and Erica agreed, and they got off at Secrets with Martha and Joshua. The foursome spent the night hopping from bar to bar, mingling with the thousands of other revelers who had come to Ocean City for Memorial Day weekend. In the early morning hours, 
Benjamin and Erica suggested that they continue the party at their penthouse condominium, which boasted a hot tub. Martha and Joshua agreed, but needed to stop at their own condominium to pick up their bathing suits first. Once they retrieved their belongings, they headed over to Benjamin and Erica's place. Erica claimed that she went upstairs to fill up the hot tub, but said that Joshua followed her up and started making advances towards her. Soon after, she noticed that her purse was missing. She and Benjamin accused Martha and Joshua of trying to steal the purse by throwing it over the balcony. Tensions escalated when Benjamin pulled out a gun and began to threaten the couple. Erica said that Martha and Joshua sought refuge in the bathroom, which they locked behind them. Benjamin followed close behind. He made them strip at gunpoint, and I was like, oh my god, I I was like, had no idea what was going on. And he told me that Josh said, I was in the Army, you were in the Navy, why are you doing this, why are you doing this? And BJ said that he looked at him in the face and he said, see you later, he shot him in the head. According to Erica, Benjamin shot once through the door before kicking it open and opening fire on Joshua. She said that he then turned his attention to Martha. Jeannie would not have been shot yet. She was just whimpering and she curled up in a ball and he missed her the first time. And the second time he hit her right here. For the record, she's gesturing at her left chest. She had curled up behind Joshua's body. I'm getting like really panicked. Erica described how she attempted to help her husband in dismembering Martha and Joshua's bodies, but she couldn't handle the grisly scene. The sight of blood made her vomit, she said. I'm laying downstairs and I'm like curled up on the couch, just petrified, and I hear him say, come up here. I go up there and he's like, take my picture, and he's holding their heads. Josh's head in one hand, and Jeannie's head in the other hand, and wants you to take his picture. And what was he wearing? Nothing. Erica told detectives that once Martha and Joshua's bodies were dismembered, they stuffed them into garbage bags and then tossed them in a dumpster in Delaware. When Erica was asked why Martha and Joshua were killed, she responded, BJ needs a rush. He always does things for a rush. Following the confession, Erica agreed to take Detective Bernal to the bodies of Martha and Joshua. She traveled with him to two dumpsters behind grocery stores in Rehoboth, Delaware, but the bodies were not located in either one. Detectives continued searching for the bodies while Benjamin and Erica Sifrit were charged with first-degree murder, first-degree assault, handgun charges, and theft. They were ordered held without bail. They both retained defense attorneys, and despite Erica's confession to her role in the double murder, her attorney, Archangelo Tuminelli, quickly came to her defense. He commented in the media, The only thing I would say is this event is completely out of character for Erica. She was a good student, a good athlete, and had no criminal record until this point. On June 2nd, defense attorney Tuminelli began negotiations with state attorney Joel Todd regarding the charges against his client. Those negotiations resulted in a Memorandum of Understanding, also known as an MOU, a document outlining an agreement between two or more parties. 
The MOU stated that Erica had agreed to cooperate with the state in their prosecution of Benjamin. She also agreed to testify truthfully on behalf of the state if the case against him went to trial. The MOU provided that the state would neither seek the death penalty against Erica, nor would they seek a sentence of life without parole if she cooperated. It further provided that if Erica took a polygraph examination and passed on all questions relating to the murders of Martha and Joshua, then the state would not prosecute her for the murder charges. Once the MOU was executed, Erica sat down with detectives once more and provided them with more information. Erica said that after Martha and Joshua were dismembered, Benjamin packed them into Navy kit bags and then they drove out to a dumpster and threw them in. It was not the dumpster she had directed them to before, but instead another one across the street behind a Food Lion grocery store. By the time detectives arrived, the dumpster contents had already been taken to a landfill in the city. They immediately went to the landfill to begin the tedious task of sifting through tons of garbage. Around 55 detectives were at the scene, searching through an 800-square-foot area on a 40-acre, 150-foot-tall mound of garbage. They sifted through the garbage by hand and with heavy machinery and hand rakes. As darkness descended, they were still searching and had lights brought in so that they could continue searching throughout the night. While searching, they came across garbage bags containing a man's torso, two arms, and a woman's left leg. There were two bullet holes, and embedded inside the torso, they recovered two bullets from a three hundred fifty seven Magnum. Despite searching all throughout the night, these were the only human remains that detectives recovered. They were transported to the medical examiner's office where they were expected to be identified using DNA. Ocean City Police spokesman Jay Hancock announced, apparently there weren't material there to use other conventional processes. DNA testing proved that the remains were indeed Martha and Joshua. Detectives believe that after Martha and Joshua spent the evening drinking, Benjamin and Erica Sifrit invited them back to their condominium. Here, the Sifrits engaged in a missing purse game, in which they claimed that Erica's purse had gone missing. The purpose of the game remained a mystery, but it turned sinister when a phone call came in to the police from Erica in the early morning hours. It was around 3 a.m., and she claimed to the operator that people she didn't know were in her condominium, and she couldn't find her purse. Worcester 911, get an emergency? Yes, I have an emergency at my apartment. Um, there are people in my house who I don't know, and my purse is suddenly missing, and I'm afraid I'm going to have a robbery here. Okay, people in your apartment at this time? Yes. I'll connect you to the police. Stay on the line. Hey. What? I'm, I'm upstairs in a bedroom where they don't know where I am. Okay, I'll connect you to the police. You can tell them, okay? Okay. Huh? Detectives believe that Benjamin and Erica ordered Martha and Joshua to search for the purse, and when it couldn't be found, they were forced upstairs where they were killed. This theory was partially based on testimony from Melissa Sealing, a woman who had contacted investigators once Benjamin and Erica were arrested. Melissa told investigators that she met the Sifrits on the night of May 29th through her friend, Justin, 
Todd Wright. She said that on this night, she met up with Todd, and he was with Benjamin and Erica. Other than Melissa, they were all highly intoxicated. Melissa joined Todd and the Sifrits as they bounced from bar to bar, but she opted to stick to non-alcoholic drinks that night, unlike the others. At the end of the night, Melissa was worried about Benjamin's ability to drive home, so she agreed she would follow them back to the Sifrits condominium. She pulled up outside and, at Benjamin's request, helped Erica into the condominium as she struggled to stand without assistance. However, Melissa noticed that as soon as they approached the front door, Erica was able to locate her keys in her purse without a problem. Once they were all inside, Erica showed Melissa around the condominium. Within minutes of having her purse at the front door, Erica and Benjamin claimed that somebody had stolen it. Melissa and Todd were ordered to search the condominium for the alleged missing purse, but their search quickly turned terrifying when Benjamin produced a gun and began making threats. He became more insistent about finding the purse and made numerous statements about people trying to rip them off. He then commented that he was doing the world a justice by ridding the earth of bad people. As Melissa and Todd searched, Benjamin threatened that if they had ripped them off, he would kill them the same way he killed those other people. By this stage, Melissa and Todd were terrified, and Melissa asked Benjamin to put the gun away. Melissa turned her attention to the bathroom and noticed a bullet hole in the door, but it had been removed from its hinges. Benjamin came over and commented, You see that? We had another couple here a few nights ago who tried to rip us off. I shot them right through that door. After several minutes of searching, Benjamin said he found the purse, but it was in a location that had already been searched. After Melissa came forward to detectives with the bizarre incident, they theorized that the same thing had happened to Martha and Joshua. On June 15th, Benjamin and Erica Sifrit were indicted on two counts of first-degree murder, first-degree assault, and several handgun violations. Meanwhile, tributes from Martha Crutchley and Joshua Ford came flooding in. The AME Church in Washington, D.C., where Joshua had been a youth counselor, held a memorial in his honor. They also announced that they were creating a scholarship in his name. AME is a historic black church, and it was the first time a white person had been bestowed such an honor. Joshua's brother, Mark, commented, He left behind a beautiful son, a mother, a brother, a sister. We all miss him. In a cruel twist of fate, this was the second murder to befall the Ford family. Eight years prior, Joshua's niece, Kelly, was found beheaded on Cape Cod. Mark poignantly commented, I thought I was just starting to walk straighter, and now I'm walking crooked again. Joshua's family came together on June 17th for a memorial service at Mount Auburn Cemetery, nestled within the charming town of Cambridge. As the memorial service commenced, fond recollections of Joshua's vibrant personality and kind nature were shared among the congregation. 
The poignant ambiance of the service was momentarily interrupted by a funny story from his former wife, who recounted a tale about his passion for singing and how he had once woken her up by singing along to Aerosmith. Joshua's mother, Doris, spoke from her heart. She expressed her admiration for her son's remarkable character and fondly recalled how she had never once heard Joshua say a single negative thing about anybody, a true testament to his nature. The service concluded with a rendition of the military bugle call, Taps, and the presence of an army honor guard who paid homage to Joshua's service to his country. Martha's family opted for a private ceremony. 20 end of June, Benjamin Sifrit's defense attorney, Burton Anderson, then filed a motion requesting that the 911 call from Erica on the night of the murders be handed over. As these issues were being handled in court, Worcester County State's attorney Joel Todd announced that he would not be seeking the death penalty. His decision was in part due to the fact that Martha and Joshua's family wanted Benjamin instead to spend the rest of his life in prison. He stated, They were unanimously opposed to the death penalty. They feel it is too humane and not enough punishment. They feel as though life without the possibility of parole will cause him more grief and punishment than putting him to sleep. While State Attorney Todd was initially keen to seek the death penalty, he decided not to supersede all of the family members in this case. In October, there was an unexpected twist in the case when a judge refused to drop murder charges against Erica. As part of the Memorandum of Understanding, the charges against her relating to murder were to be dropped. However, in a six-hour hearing, defense attorney Tuminelli and state attorney Todd demonstrated differing interpretations of the agreement. It was decided that the charges would only be dropped if Erica passed a polygraph examination. However, State Attorney Todd revealed that the agreement was nullified when Erica gave statements to Secret Service agents in a pre-polygraph interview that implicated her in the murder. She told the agents that after Benjamin chased Martha and Joshua into the bathroom, he asked her, I'm supposed to waste them? Cool? And she replied, just do it. After making this comment, she told the agents, now you have me on murder. Based on those comments, the plea agreement was voided, meaning the polygraph examination never occurred. State Attorney Todd stated that Erica contradicted herself so many times, I wasn't sure she had any value left as a witness. It was decided that Benjamin and Erica Sifrit would be facing two separate trials, and in November, Defense Attorney Tuminelli requested that Erica's trial be moved. He argued that due to the publicity of the case, his client would not get a fair trial. Judge Theodore Eschenberg agreed and announced that Erica's trial would be moved to Frederick County. Benjamin's defense team followed suit and the judge moved his trial to Montgomery County. After the change of venue was announced, Defense Attorney Tuminelli wrote a letter to State Attorney Todd announcing that Erica wanted the belongings that were confiscated from her after her arrest returned to her, not Benjamin or his representatives. In the letter, Defense Attorney Tuminelli listed these items. They included 30 Hooters restaurant tank tops and a Hooters duffel bag. 
The letter indicated that the Hooters items were separate from the items that Erica and Benjamin were in the process of stealing when they were arrested. There were more technicalities to be worked out as the new year broke. Defense attorney Tuminelli wanted certain parts of Erica's confession thrown out of evidence. This included her comments that she and Benjamin admired Adolf Hitler because of his power. Defense attorney Tuminelli argued that these comments were made during plea bargain negotiations on the burglary charge that prosecutors said they would drop. State attorney E. Scott Collins fought back. He argued that Erica had breached the bargain by initially lying about the circumstances of the murders and the location where the bodies were disposed of. Judge Edward Dreyer Jr. ultimately ruled that all of the statements made by Erica during the negotiations were inadmissible, meaning that the prosecution could not use any of them during her trial. On April 1, 2003, the highly anticipated murder trial of Benjamin Sifrit commenced. During opening statements, State Attorney Todd captivated the jury with the disturbing encounter between Melissa Selling and Todd Wright with Benjamin and Erica, which occurred just days after Martha and Joshua were killed. He revealed to the jury that Benjamin had confessed to Melissa and Todd when he pointed to the bullet holes and said, I killed them. I shot them right through that door. The state attorney also divulged that Erica had allegedly told Benjamin that her purse was missing, just like she had done two nights before with Martha and Joshua present in the condominium. State attorney Todd stated, Mrs. Sifrit said to the defendant, BJ, my purse is missing again. He argued that these statements sent Benjamin Sifrit into a rage. Whether it was genuine or not, he commented, the whole purse episode was a game, ladies and gentlemen. However, defense attorney William Brennan had a different story to tell the jury. During his opening statements, he pointed the finger at Erica Sifrit and accused her of being the real killer, not Benjamin. He painted Erica as an unstable woman, prone to panic attacks, and dependent on anti-anxiety medication. He alleged that she was sexually promiscuous and said, don't confuse his actions with those of his wife. Defense attorney Brennan told the jury that the murder weapon was a 357 Magnum, the same gun found tucked away in Erica's jeans on the night of the arrests. He also informed them that the spent bullet casings were found in Erica's handbag, along with Martha and Joshua's driver's license. He boldly declared, Erica Sifrit committed the murders in this case. That is what the evidence will show. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. On the first day of the trial, the prosecutor presented a plethora of evidence found on Benjamin and Erica Sifrit, as well as inside their condominium. The jury listened intently as Melissa Sealing took to the stand to reveal the terrifying ordeal she experienced at the Sifrit's condominium just two days after Martha and Joshua were killed. She described how, when she first met Erica, she felt uneasy. She explained that Benjamin told her that his wife packs heat and that she would kill a cop. When they arrived at the condominium, Erica said, let's jump in this jacuzzi and drive these boys crazy. She claimed she took the statement as an invitation to have sex with her, but Melissa made up an excuse and said she didn't have a bathing suit. Testimony then turned to the moment Benjamin and Erica claimed her purse was missing and how Benjamin produced a gun. Through tears, she said, I had never been in a situation where I felt my life threatened. To me, it was almost a living nightmare. During cross-examination by defense attorney Brennan, it was suggested that Melissa was not clear on what exactly Benjamin Sifrit said to her that night when he said he had killed two people. Melissa conceded that she wasn't certain whether he said, I killed, she killed, or we killed. She stated, He told me in so many words that he was involved in the murder of these two people. The next witness was Michael McGinnis, an old friend of Benjamin and a Navy SEAL. He testified that in 1999, he and Benjamin were talking in a bar about how to dispose of a body. Benjamin suggested cutting off the head and limbs wrapping them in bags, and putting them in different trash bins to avoid detection. The prosecution argued that this was a chilling prequel to the May 26th murders of Martha and Joshua. The defense, however, maintained that the comments were no more than idle conversations between two men talking trash over beers. Michael defended his friend's comments and testified that such conversations were not uncommon among Navy SEALs, who were trained to kill and destroy. He came to his friend's defense and said that he never wanted to testify and that investigators had the nature of the conversation wrong. Following the testimony, the defense presented the 911 call Erica had made from the condominium on the night of the murders. In the call, she said her purse was missing and there were people inside her condominium that she didn't know. Erica stated, I'm upstairs in a bedroom, and they don't know where I am. 
The call was transferred to the Ocean City 911 Center, and Erica said, There are people in the apartment, a lot of people. She then claimed that she thought there was a third person on the line, asked for an alternative phone number, and then hung up. The defense team suggested that this phone call supported their evidence that Erica was unstable and that she killed Martha and Joshua in a rage over an imagined robbery. The courtroom fell silent when Benjamin took to the witness stand on April 7th. He said to the jury that Erica was out of control and that she was obsessed with the 357 found in her jeans, the weapon used to kill Martha and Joshua. He claimed that he, Erica, Martha, and Joshua got the bus to Martha and Joshua's condo after a night of partying. Erica went to their condominium with them, but he claimed he returned to their condominium alone. Once there, however, he realized he didn't have a key to the unit, so he got into the Jeep and passed out. He said that sometime later, Erica woke him up and shouted, Why weren't you there for me? He followed her inside and into the bathroom, where he found Martha and Joshua deceased. He did not specifically say that Erica had killed them, but he implied that she had. He then told the jury that he went into the bedroom to decide whether to help or turn her in. He said, I decided to help her cover up the murders. I shouldn't have done it. I shouldn't have helped her. Benjamin then admitted that he cut up the bodies, wrapped them in plastic bags, and then dumped them in the trash. He also admitted that this method of disposal was his idea, not his wife's. Benjamin then testified about Melissa's testimony and denied her accusations. He said he simply showed her a gun in his waistband, but only to explain to her how it worked. After Benjamin Sifrit's testimony, the courtroom prepared for the closing arguments. State Attorney Todd painted a vivid picture of how the Sifrits had lured Martha and Joshua back to the penthouse after a night of drinking. He said that once there, the Sifrits played a dangerous game with their victims. He suggested that once Benjamin flew into a rage, Joshua possibly stood his ground and wasn't intimidated, like Benjamin and Erica had intended. He remarked, Joshua Ford didn't want to play the game. The prosecution's theory suggested that after Benjamin pulled out the gun, Martha and Joshua fled to the bathroom and locked the door behind them. He said that evidence suggested Joshua then leaned against the door as a barricade. Benjamin then shot once through the door, hitting Joshua in the arm, before kicking it down and opening fire. Joshua was shot twice more, and then the attention turned to Martha. State Attorney Todd said he didn't believe that Martha was shot, but he couldn't say how she was killed since so little of her body was recovered. The prosecutor then acknowledged that he couldn't prove conclusively that it was Benjamin who fired the gun and not his wife. However, he argued that Benjamin was not innocently sleeping like he had claimed. He said, We'll never know, and you'll never know who pulled the trigger that night, but one thing is for sure, they were both there. Defense attorney Brennan told the court during his closing arguments that crazy Erica suffered a panic attack on the morning of the murders. He contended that his client was asleep and wasn't there to keep her in check when she lost control. He stated, this woman knows no boundaries, who cannot control herself. That is the murderer in this case. 
After deliberating for 14 hours over the course of two days, the jury reached a verdict. They found Benjamin Sifrit guilty of the second-degree murder of Martha Crutchley, but they acquitted him of the murder of Joshua Ford. The verdict left Joshua Ford's friends and family stunned, with his brother, Mark, expressing his disgust outside the courtroom. He said, I'm totally disgusted. He took away a good brother, a very loving, trustworthy friend to everybody, and this guy walks. Detective Scott Burnell also commented that the split decision made no sense. He stated, How come they do not find him guilty of both after finding him guilty of one? After the verdict was handed down, Erica Sifrit's defense team wasted no time in trying to obtain Benjamin's testimony for her upcoming trial. On the witness stand, he had admitted to cutting up Martha and Joshua's bodies. This would counter the state's accusations that Erica was also an accessory to the double murder. Prosecutors contended that if the statement was allowed, then the judge needed to admit the rest of Benjamin's testimony, in which he essentially pinned the murders on Erica. The judge said he would allow the defense team to reference the testimony in their opening statements. On June 4th, the jury were seated, and Erica's murder trial was ready to begin. State Attorney Todd used a computer slideshow to display photographs of the gun and items found in Erica's purse. These included four shell casings and a live round from the same weapon, a gold ring that belonged to Joshua that Erica wore as a necklace, and Martha and Joshua's driver's license. He presented a photograph of Erica after the murders wearing a ring on a necklace, which he said was Joshua's ring. He stated, Her hobby was that she liked to collect things, anything to help the defendant look back and remember significant things in her life. State Attorney Todd said that the 357 found in Erica's jeans was the weapon used to kill Joshua, which was proven by ballistics and forensic evidence. Defense attorney Thomas Sarasso didn't dispute during his opening statements that Erica Sifrit participated in the Hooters burglary and in covering up the murders. However, he said it was their theory that Benjamin Sifrit carried out the murders, not Erica. He stated, We're here because the state of Maryland has said Erica Sifrit murdered two people. She didn't. The state knows it. We're going to prove to you who murdered these people. The defense then referenced Benjamin's own testimony in which he admitted to dismembering and disposing of the bodies. The state's first witness was Dr. Adrienne Sekula Perlman, a deputy state medical examiner who testified that she removed two bullets from Joshua's torso. The jury also heard from Ann Wright, who testified she met Erica at a Home Depot store in Ocean City two days after the murders. She alleged that Erica was carrying a triangular piece of wood, which was apparently from the apartment's bathroom door. Anne told the jury Erica said to her, Do you believe that's all that's left of my door? Anne replied, That must have been some party. She claimed that Erica then laughed and said, I guess you could call it that. Testimony would also be presented from various police officers, including those who arrested Erica and Benjamin. Detective Clint Chamberlain identified the ring found in Erica's purse as Joshua's ring and believed it was the same ring seen around Erica's neck in a photograph prosecutors presented. 
Under cross-examination by defense attorney Sarasso, he was asked, You can't really say it's the same ring, can you? He responded, I can positively say that it was. Maryland State Police ballistics expert Joseph Copera testified next, telling the courtroom that the bullets that killed Joshua had come from the gun tucked away in Erica's jeans. The final witness called by the prosecution was Mitchell Grace, Erica's father. He said he was upset when Benjamin told him he was planning on buying a gun for his daughter. After the prosecution rested their case, Judge Edward Dwyer acquitted Erica of one charge, a handgun violation, ruling that the state had not proven that Martha had been shot. The prosecution then said they were dropping several charges against Erica, including being an accessory after the fact. They didn't explain the decision, but it was assumed that they hoped it would prevent the defense from introducing the statements that Benjamin had made during his trial regarding the dismemberment. The defense then got to work, calling Melissa Sealing as their star witness. She testified that Erica's out-of-control husband told her he shot and killed Martha and Joshua. She claimed she never saw Erica with a gun that night and said that Benjamin put the gun away when Erica told him he was scaring her. Under cross-examination by the prosecution, however, she admitted she wasn't sure whether Benjamin Sifrit said he, his wife, or both of them were the killers. The jury also heard from Michael McGinnis, who once more testified about the conversation he had with Benjamin back in 1999. However, he also testified about another conversation in which Benjamin spoke about killing Michael's then-wife. He stated, It was a joke. I said, Send you down there to get rid of her, and I'd be up here for a good alibi. The defense then called on Lawrence Hartman, the owner of a gun store in Altoona, who testified that the 357 Magnum was registered to Benjamin as opposed to Erica. Once the defense rested, closing arguments were presented. State Attorney Todd referred to Erica Sifrit as Little Miss Scrapbook and argued that she had kept souvenirs of the murders. He also said that she controlled her husband and had taken the lead in inviting Martha and Joshua back to the condominium after a night of partying. According to the prosecution, Erica fired one of the shots that killed Joshua and then shot at Martha but missed. Defense attorney Tuminelli countered this. He argued that Benjamin was the killer and that his client was a fragile, psychologically weak young woman. He said that Erica aided her husband only because she craved his affection. He also referenced the fact that the prosecution had presented two different theories of the crime to prosecute the Sifrits. During Benjamin's trial, they argued he shot and killed Joshua and then killed Martha, but during Erica's trial, they argued that she had shot both victims. The jury deliberated for four hours before finding Erica Sifrit guilty of the first-degree murder of Joshua Ford and guilty of the second-degree murder of Martha Crutchley. Outside of court, State Attorney Todd commented, We felt it was our role to speak out for the victims in this case. It is just very gratifying to know that we spoke loudly enough. Benjamin Sifrit returned to court on July 7th for sentencing. He was asked whether he wanted to make a statement, but turned down the opportunity. Judge Paul Weinstein called him a butcher, 
and said he didn't believe his claims that his wife was the true killer. He stated, This was nothing more than a thrill killing that you and your wife committed. The judge then took the rare step of criticizing the jury for failing to convict Benjamin in Joshua's killing, saying it was the first time in his 20-year career that he disagreed with a jury verdict. He then sentenced Benjamin Sifrit to 38 years in prison and explained that he would appear at any parole hearing in the future to object to an early release. The following month, it was time for Erica to be sentenced. Family members provided heartfelt victim impact statements, fully compounding their loss of Martha and Joshua. Joshua's sister, Melissa, said, I have such hatred in my heart for you. You stole so much from my family. You don't deserve anyone's mercy or forgiveness. Martha's sister, Anita Flickinger, addressed Erica and told her, It was not just the bodies of Jeannie and Josh you threw away. It was the last shred of your humanity. Erica's family also spoke before the judge. They said that she completely changed after meeting Benjamin Sifrit. She had a happy childhood and academic success, but soon began to experience panic attacks that led to psychiatric treatment and antidepressants. Her father, Mitchell Grace, said, her whole personality just completely changed. Unlike Benjamin Sifrit, Erica provided a statement. She wept as she apologized, saying, I'm so sorry. I don't even feel worthy to stand here and ask them to forgive me. Judge Ed Dwyer said that the contrast between Erica's actions and descriptions provided by her friends and family reminded him of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. He stated, This is one of the more vicious and incomprehensible crimes this court has witnessed, and I've heard a lot. She was sentenced to life in prison, plus 20 years. In March 2004, Erica Sifrit appealed her murder convictions. Her attorneys portrayed her as a victim who was deceived by the prosecution and canceled her plea agreement. The motion read in part, Reversal is required because the state's pledge of public faith means nothing if the state can unilaterally cast aside written obligations it makes once it decides it is advantageous to do so. Benjamin Sifrit followed suit and argued that he too deserved a new trial for the inconsistencies in the way prosecutors approached their cases. The Court of Appeals upheld all of the convictions. In 2009, Erica appealed her conviction once more. In court documents, for the first time, she made the shocking claim that Benjamin had suggested cannibalizing Martha or Joshua, but she refused. Erica argued her defense attorney didn't provide adequate defense, mainly because he didn't give the jury information about her medical conditions, including borderline personality disorder. Frederick County Circuit Judge Julie Stevenson Salt denied the request. She cited the cannibalism statement as an example of Erica exercising control over Benjamin, contrary to her claims that he controlled her. The following year, Benjamin Sifrit filed for divorce from Erica on the grounds that she was a convicted felon.
This episode was researched and written by Emily G. Thompson, editing and scoring by Corey Hiltman, script editing, additional writing, and production direction by Rosanna and Benjamin Fitton. For more on our series and notes on this episode, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. And for more on the Law & Crime Podcast Network, please visit lawandcrime.com slash podcasts. This has been They Walk Among America. Thank you for listening, and please be safe. <laughs>